My name is Kellen Kartev. I am a PhD candidate, hoping to be a PhD uh, in a couple months. <laughs> My work deals with uh, using nanoparticles to enhance analytical techniques um, in hopes that it will help the way that we detect things like cancer or other diseases inside the body. Uh, thank you for tuning in. This is my grad life. Howdy, folks. Welcome to the This Grad Life podcast. Here we chat with researchers about their work and the inner turmoil that often comes along with living life on the leading edge. I am your host, Dr. Ted Yu. If you can't get enough of science and or dread, head down to our official website, www.thisgradlife.com. There, you can read more about this episode's guest. Finally, if you find value in this podcast, you can also find links to support us. Today, I'd like to welcome Kellen Kartab. Uh, she is in the Department of Chemistry uh, here at UCI. Uh, we know each other because of our work through the Lowdown on Science. And yes. We'll probably talk a little bit about that. What, uh, Definitely. Thank you for coming. Of coming course. In. Thanks. This is super fun. <laughs> awesome. So uh, tell, tell, tell us a little bit about your work. Would you break it down for us? For sure. So um, in the most general sense, I uh, work with nanoparticles. And I see how they can be used to enhance different analytical techniques. Um, and from there, it kind of diverges into there's two different uh, kind of branches of my work. One branch deals with magnetic nanoparticles, and we are seeing if we can uh, make them biologically compatible to then use them within uh, a biosensor. It's a light-based sensor that we are hoping will be used to detect things like cancer or other diseases that can be found within the body. The key thing being at really, really low concentrations. Um, the other half is I work with gold nanoparticles and I am working on seeing if we can kind of use the gold within these high-powered microscopes to uh, image DNA that has been attached to them. And so DNA has been imaged by these high-powered microscopes, but not necessarily to the degree that we want. Also, just being able to kind of control the pattern of gold nanoparticles, that's always a fun thing. That one, that one's a bit newer of a project, so if it seems like it doesn't have as many, you know, as like strict of a structure and goal, that's because it's kind of exploratory still. Gotcha. Well, why don't we start with that then? Like, oh, okay. Uh, yeah. what, what do you mean by it's exploratory? For sure. Uh, what does that usually mean? Well, I guess, so right now, um, kind of one of the big things in the science world is uh, electron microscopy. So they work very similar to a microscope that you would find in a biological lab where you shine a light on something and you can see like leaf cells and stuff. But instead of using light, we're using electrons. And what this does is it lets us view very, 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 very small things, um, including nanoparticles and hopefully if we can push the boundaries, DNA. So um, it's actually uh, electron microscopy uh, won, or the you know uh, people who worked in electron microscopy won the Nobel Prize in 2017 for being able to image biological samples because usually the DNA, uh, sorry, 
getting confused. Usually the electrons will destroy biological samples. So the fact that they were able to safely image them has been huge. So everyone's jumping on this, including the professor I work with. So we're trying to see if we can get, you know, some of the best images of DNA using an electron microscope. And we're using the, because, you know, you can't just slap it. You could slap it down on a grid, but you'd have a hard time finding it. So it's kind of nice about the gold is that it gives you an idea of where to look. And if you know, like, oh, it's got one gold nanoparticle on one end and one gold nanoparticle on the other, somewhere in between is probably my DNA. Take a bunch of pictures and then try to back out an image of DNA. Uh, gotcha. So you're attaching gold to DNA to help find yes. them with the microscope. Yes, exactly. Could you give us a sense of scale for these things? How small is DNA and how small are nanoparticles? All right, so nanoparticles, my personal favorite way to describe a nanoparticle is if you took a soccer ball and thought about how small a soccer ball is compared to the Earth, a nanoparticle is about that same ratio when compared to the soccer ball. So nanoparticle is to soccer ball as soccer ball is to planet Earth. Another way to look at it is if you took like your hair and you looked at like the very tip of it, the really small end, you could line up about a thousand to ten thousand nanoparticles on it, depending on you know how big they were. So you mentioned a little bit ago that uh, the problem with electron microscopy, because you're throwing electrons at stuff, it will fry your sample. Yep, exactly. Uh, you mentioned how they found a way around this. What was? How did they do that? Yeah, it's this really cool process, actually, where they freeze it. But it isn't like taking water and putting it in the freezer to make ice cubes. It's a lot more particular um, uh, than that. So the first thing is, you. I mean, your sample is water-based, but you're freezing that water in liquid propane first of all, so that it freezes really fast. And it has to freeze, it's actually called vitreous ice, um, which, so ice, when it nor- when you normally have ice, uh, there are all these planes and sometimes, you know, oftentimes it's ice is cloudy and you can't see through it. And it's the same idea where if you have a bad cloudy, you know, icy sample, the electrons will just get scattered everywhere. You need ice that acts like a window and where it can go straight through. So just like how we can see through windows, vitreous ice allows electrons to go straight through it. Because it is. It's glass-like. That's literally what vitreous means. Uh, So it's propane because it's, number one, that cold and it's that clear? Exactly, yeah. So there's a reason why liquid nitrogen does not work and liquid propane does. And I believe it's because liquid nitrogen freezes it too fast almost, but liquid propane is just, it's kind of like just right, or it'll freeze the water such that it becomes vitreous ice and not icy ice. Can't tell you though how, it's still difficult. I can't tell you how many times we're looking at my sample and the tech helping me, she'll be like, nope, it's too icy. And I just, I don't know, I guess, well, you, you freeze the liquid propane using liquid nitrogen. So if any liquid nitrogen gets in, you're you're in trouble. That's probably where it came from. It's it's an art. It's truly an art. Oh, and then the fun part. So once, so you have your liquid nitrogen or propane. You have liquid propane, which you froze with your liquid nitrogen. Which you yes, exactly. Okay, so you yes, gotcha. you condense your propane to your, your you condense propane gas using liquid nitrogen so that you have liquid propane because liquid propane is it's, just freezes, yep, freezes it just right. Freezes, gotcha. freezes just right. And then what you do is you take your teeny tiny grid that has your sample on it. You stick it into a machine, and it's called a freeze plunge because it will plunge your sample rather violently into the bath of liquid propane to freeze it. That's and really it is really fun. It's a little shocking the first time because it's it makes this like huge like thwack sound when it finishes. Um, 
and always, you know, surprises people, but then you get used to it. And even like things like the rate at which it speeds down towards the propane and how long it does that, like the distance and everything, all that was carefully optimized. And that's why they won the Nobel Prize is because every aspect of it had to be optimized to create like, you know, this these ideal conditions for viewing biological samples under vacuum and with all these electrons shooting at it. And even then, it doesn't necessarily work. One of the many struggles with, oh, yes. And so this is called cryo um, EM. So cryo because it's frozen and then electron microscopy. It's an art. <laughs> oh, yeah. I don't know if are we allowed to like cuss on this. Yeah. Fuck, okay. Curse so cryo EM, because it was, you know, Nobel Prize worthy is hot shit right now. Everybody who's anybody who does work that's biologically related wants in. And that's how this project started. <laughs> that's because they can, that way they can see all exactly. the stuff. Exactly. Yeah. Going they can on. see all these stuff. So proteins, cells. Um, if you have water based nanoparticles, like hydrogels, for example, are often filled with water and under vacuum, they'd normally explode. But now that you've frozen them, you can view them as they would be um, in your actual sample and not like in vacuum. It opens the door to a lot of things. Neat. So, and one of the ways to get around that problem of, hey, DNA is so goddamn small, we can't really see it. Yes, yes, uh, and DNA was, is also um, tiny. Yeah, tiny stuff. We can't see it. And so one of the things was you'd have guys like me who did computational work, who would go in and mm -hmm. model them in a computer, because if it's in a computer, you can see it. Do you uh, think that might replace a lot of that work? I'm not that I'm being defensive. And no, no. Right so actually... Right now, the way you do it is you have to take a bunch of images and then you still have to almost model it in a, any way. Like you basically have to take these images and then kind of, you know, stack them on top of each other and try to pull out the best image you can. So there's still a heavy component of um, kind of, I don't want to use the word manipulation, but it kind of is manipulation, which then, of course, you know, so when I started this project, one of my initial questions was, you know, how does this, how do we know this is real if we're applying all of these different functions and manipulations to it are like, how do we know we're not just forcing out what we want? So right. you do have to keep very careful track of every step that you take. And ideally we don't have to do as many manipulations. If you take enough images, then it can kind of refine it. And that, that's actually like what the process is called is this refinement thing. Yeah. So it's not at all like taking a picture of the camera where it already kind of right. comes pre-ready made. Well, regardless of the fact that your camera already does a lot of manipulation for you, we just don't see it. And it just kind of looks nice. We just don't think it does. Right, exactly. It looks like what we saw, right? Yeah. It's almost like it's almost like 3D printing. Or, or you know what? Actually, a better way is it's almost like sculpting, I'd say. Or not sculpting, but um, what is it? What did, what did Michelangelo or, you know, yeah, Michelangelo do? He, like, he was sculpting. Yeah, so, oh, yeah. So it is yeah. like sculpting. So, yeah, it's almost like sculpting where, you know, you're searching for whatever is within the marble and you're chipping away at it slowly. So this is, we're kind of doing that, but instead of chipping, we're just layering image after image after image on top of each other in hopes that with enough particles and images, we can just like refine it and get rid of anything that's noise or um, just background and just be left with gold nanoparticles and DNA. How long has this technique been around? So the ideas for electron microscopes started in the early 20th century. So like we're talking 1920s into 1930s, but obviously we didn't start to get good until much later. So it looks like 1930s was the first electron microscope, but 
with each iteration, it gets better and better. And then, yeah, cryo. <laughs> the cryo came along in the 60s, but hasn't been... It's With the Nobel Prize, it has become much more popular. Hot shit, like I said. It really is. Everybody is just like, oh, if we cryo it. <laughs> I guess because they're excited to see what I mean, yeah, things it is, look like. It I, is really I, cool, yeah. but it is also kind of like an art. Yes. <laughs> so uh, it heartens me somewhat to know that I remember in um, like high school biology classes where we'd have to look at stuff under a microscope. Um, where we'd have to like fumble around with the slide to try to find something. Like, where's yeah. this? Where's my thing? Well, I don't oh, see it. And we oh actually like, fumble around is, for it's it. The exact yeah. Same. yeah, yeah. Oh, it heartens me to know that. It's a, that kind of phenomenon is really why I went to computational stuff because that way I don't have to work with actual microscopes or anything. Oh yeah, no, um. it's, it's exactly the same. I can't tell you. I Stop. have wasted hours on the microscope because I can't find my sample, and you're just scrolling around, scrolling around. You're like, where? Is it? Because I mean, you know, the grid is really small, but we're zooming in so far. And if you have to zoom in really far to even get an idea of if your sample's, then just that's so much ground to cover. It's so much ground to cover. So that was that was one of the hardest things when you first learn is you're like, can am I just being an idiot? Can I not find it? Sometimes you just have to scroll a bunch. And I still don't really know how people who are more experienced, they get a lot. The more you do it, the more experience you do and the faster you are at finding it. But I still do not know. How. I have definitely had times where I go to the, her name's Lee. She is like one of the forces and reasons why I will be graduating with a PhD from all her help. I'll just go to Lee and be like, Lee, I can't find it. I don't, my sample is empty and she'll scroll around for a bit. And she's like, here you go. Here's a good area. I'm like, how did you find that? How did you know where to go? It's not fair. <laughs> so, um, yeah, no, it's unfortunately still a problem, even with electron microscopes. Comes with the uh, territory of, oh, you know, yes. losing a lot of samples. Uh, yep, pretty much. That's grad life for you. Oh, roll credits. Oh, <laughs> we did it. Oh, man. So, okay. Why don't we? Uh, so you said this. Well, that was your uh, yes your recent topic. But yes. what's kind of like the meat of your project? Yes, the other one. The meat you... of my project, right? So yes, the one that I've been focusing a lot of time on, trying to wrap up a paper. Very exciting. Is I'm making these magnetic nanoparticles, and even though they're not biological, it still means they come with their own slew of troubles. <laughs> but yes, so we're trying to take magnetic nanoparticles. We're trying to make them biologically compatible. So we can wrap them in things like DNA or protein so that they can be used within this biosensor. So basically a little setup that is used to try to detect biological things. And one of the best ways to detect biological things is to use its biological complement. So kind of like how DNA is two strands that are complementary to each other. A lot of things in biology, you know, there's something that'll probably latch onto it. I guess, partner of some sort. Yeah, exactly. So you want to, so the idea being like, if you take your magnetic nanoparticle you code it in something that is specific for, say, like this disease or this cancer. You introduce a sample and you let it, you know, float around, do its thing, maybe manipulate it using magnetic field. And then uh, the idea is that we would draw it down to the surface in order to detect it using light. And that goes into a whole new area of science. But the, I guess, you know, in a quick nutshell, the idea is that we're shining light on a surface and these surfaces are very sensitive to any change. So if we were to bring a nanoparticle down suddenly, it'll change the way light is reflected. So then all you have to do is look for a change in how light's reflected. And it's just like this slight change of kind of like how much light is reflected, really. 
And then you'll know, oh, that something has come to my surface and it does or does not have, you know, um, an indicator for cancer on it. And it's a size thing. So what's, you know, you if you're worried like, oh, well, won't it just um, change because you are bringing the nanoparticle down? Yes, but it should change more if the nanoparticle has the target attached to it that you wanted it to have. So that's, there's a lot of different areas to my science. I don't not only need to understand biology, but there's a lot of physical chemistry involved and light and optics and surface plasma resonance, which is its fancy name for why light is reflecting off the surface in such a sensitive manner. Um, but going back to the nanoparticles, because yeah, I just focus on a very small part of this, which is try to make the nanoparticles biocompatible. <laughs> um, so the reason why, oh, and sorry, I should also mention like why having a magnetic nanoparticle helps. Um, for these sensors, if you want a really effective sensor, one of the ways to do that is to make it be able to detect things at smaller and smaller amounts. But the problem is, is if you just kind of wait for it to float down to to the surface, which is one day, you could just coat your surface in, you know, whatever its complement is and wait for it to naturally float down. The smaller the concentration, the longer it'll take. And we're talking like hours to days. And that doesn't really make for an effective sensor if it takes so long. The idea behind the magnet would be that you could let the magnet find it and then manually bring it down by just applying a magnetic field. And it would speed things up. That's like the, you know, this is, you know, we're talking years in the future, pie in the sky work. Gotcha. So but right yes. now. But yeah, step one is make magnetics, magnets biologically compatible. Now the reason behind that. Sorry, I like jumping into nanoparticle synthesis because that's, those are like, like making nanoparticles and characterizing them. That's like my real love. So I just like, you know. Let's talk about TEMs. Let's talk about nanoparticles. Okay, so why we Please, need to make them? Why we need to make them um, biologically compatible is because a lot of syntheses produce nanoparticles that are not. Um, so what that means is, so a very common way to synthesize nanoparticles is you take your material, say like you know whatever metals or materials you want in it. So for a gold nanoparticle, you'd put gold in. Um, my magnetic nanoparticles are a combination of iron, manganese, and zinc. So I throw those in. Um, you need something so that they'll dissolve in. That's easy peasy. And then you need some kind of way to cap your nanoparticle to make it stop growing after a while. And these are called surfactants. Um, they're usually this oily substance that can kind of wrap itself around the nanoparticle as it's forming and eventually stop its growth. But oils, right? If we think about oil and vinegar, vinegar is your water base and oil is your oil. Those things don't mix. Hence, not biologically compatible nanoparticles. The DNA is in the water and the nanoparticle is in the oil. You're going to have a bad time trying to transfer one to the other. Yeah, because we're mostly water. That's... Exactly. Yeah, we are. We're mostly water. So we want nanoparticles that can function in water. So what that means then is making a nanoparticle and stripping away its oily coating once it's made and replacing it with something that's, a, you know, some kind of like polymer or coating that is water compatible. And so... We have found that and it's been working really well. So we're just trying to do a couple final experiments and hopefully write a paper on it. These special small magnets that have their special hydrophilic coating that makes them like water. Very good. Um, oh, it's going to be like a way technical question. Uh, <laughs> I, it, yeah, magnets. We can get real deep into magnets. Yeah, so you had... so they. They need to be coated in this oil to prevent them from growing. Yes, exactly. Um, but that doesn't work because it's not. It's oil, therefore it doesn't mix right. in water. Uh, 
It works in some, you know, in some capacities, but for ours, it does not. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. Um, so then, uh, would it have been possible to use something like uh, amphiphilic? Some, some sort oh, of amphiphilic yeah, totally. That would um, definitely work. You amphiphilic totally do oh, meaning... Oh, yes, uh, meaning it likes both yeah, water yeah. and oil. Yes. Yep. No, that's totally possible. Um, but fortunately, there's... There are um, like polymers out there that will bind strongly to the nanoparticle while still being completely hydrophilic. So, but it's yeah, no, there's a, there's many routes to it. This is just one of many, but it's working. So you know, stick with it. Hey, <laughs> if it works, right? If uh, it works, publish, publish it yeah. <laughs> and graduate. <laughs> yes, yes, that is important. Um, how close are you to graduating? You mentioned. O M G! I am. Hopefully two months out. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's a time. Two months? No, wait. Is it more than two months? No, it's... Well, okay, it's technically two and a half months, but I'm losing half a month because I'm getting married. Oh. <laughs> <Gotcha>. Yep. <laughs> well, that, congratulations. Thank first you. Of all. Um, also, uh, the, the timing? Uh, yeah, the timing. It seemed like a really good idea at the time. So the idea was way back when I got engaged, was that we'll wait. And then when I'm really tired with, you know, being a grad student and all my friends have graduated, you know, like upper class, you know, people and stuff, um, that I would have this wedding planning to keep me distracted. I like having a lot going on in my life. Um, I'm involved in much more than just research, but so, you know, wedding planning would be like a nice distraction to help me, you know, stay motivated as I'm pushing to the end. And it kind of has because it's added this very intense deadline to my life of trying to wrap up as much as I literally fly out in a week. All right. So this is very much on the <laughs> forefront of my mind right now. <laughs> um, yeah, you guys didn't see this, but as I was preparing the, uh, the all the equipment for the episode, she was like, you know, sending off oh, emails yes. for oh, yeah. no, I've, all the I've wedding got, I still have um, oh, messages man. and texts that, yep. Oh, we, we every, every, I thought I was pretty much done. And then we just got the word that five more people want to come. And the wedding is literally less than two weeks out. So now I have to squeeze 123 people into 120 seats. But that is a story for another day. Um, yes. So, Sounds like a wedding. Yeah, I know. Right. So I think, so, well, here's, so here's where my mistake was. I don't regret timing it around the same time as graduating. Um, because it is, you know, the, the closer you get to the end, it's amazing how much more stress there is. You know, you're trying to wrap things up. Is this good enough for a paper? Was, you know, is it all going to get done on time and stuff like that? And you also lose a little, you know, you're not doing as many experiments. You're trying to write. And so there's a lot going on, a lot of transitions. Um, so wedding planning has been nice. It's been a nice distraction slash, you know. Well, it's also been very intrusive. Um, <laughs> but the mistake I made was thinking, was not making wedding planning a big enough priority. So like originally, say, going into the summer, um, I had three chapters of my thesis that I was juggling, you know, still trying to do work on two of those, a lot of work. And I thought, well, this is fine. That's priority one, two, three. Wedding planning, I can just sprinkle in whenever. No, no, no. Big mistake. Because in those like final months before your wedding, 
it basically becomes like a full-time job, especially if you do not have a wedding planner, which we do not, which was also possibly a mistake. Um, <laughs> so once I started making wedding planning priority number one, you know, research for my magnetic project priority number two, and if I have time for anything else, then good job you, but probably not and being okay with, you know, that I will only be able to focus on those two things and the other will we'll just have to wait till after the wedding. Once I was able to, you know, um, plan around that and be okay with that, life became a lot better. Still busy, but I wasn't totally losing my mind. I was just half losing my mind. Um, so in conclusion, do I recommend planning a wedding and trying to graduate within months of each other? Definitely not. But it's totally doable. The, the thing you just, all you have to do is just be very, you know, realistic with how much work you're going to be able to get done for, say, like your PhD. Because wedding planning will take up a huge amount of your life. So much time. Unless you have a wedding planner. But even then, I don't know, you know, even then. So yeah, I mean, that's, uh, that's, yeah that's what I've learned. <laughs> we're on a grad student budget, I can't imagine. The wedding planner is uh, yeah. in the cards. Yeah. Sometimes though, I'm like, it might have been worth the cost. Or just, well, see, but then, because I was only considering a day of planner. Somebody to, you know, be there just to make sure that everything goes smoothly so you and your family don't have to. Those prices were not terrible, but I don't know how much, um, and even day of planners will usually meet with you a little bit out, but like, I don't think they're, you know, handling like all of the small details that I've been having to handle. So yeah, I can't even tell you how much they were. And it was definitely a, you know, we can totally handle this. We don't need to waste our money on a wedding planner. This is fine. I'm like, now I know why those people stay in business. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, definitely part of it. It's fine. It's all fine. <laughs> Well, I'm glad it's working out for you. It is. Yeah, it is. I'm definitely, you know, final week before I fly out, really trying to get as much done as possible. Well, <laughs> it's kind of like this. This is my experiment. It has to work the first time. Okay, let's go. And for the most part, it's been working the first time. So that's been nice, you know. Finally. This well, is not normal. Oh, <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, when it work, needs to work out, I, the, the you know, the world has a weird way of It does, right? Yeah, towards the end, you've been devoting years of your life to polishing your technique, and now it's finally paying off in this 11th hour of you mad, your mad dash to finish up things before you fly out to go get married. <laughs> so in between all that wedding planning, yes. what does your day-to-day -day look like inside of a lab? Ooh, yes. Um... So it's almost better to actually go like a week to week because usually, or my week will usually follow a very similar pattern of one day for synthesizing my nanoparticles or whatever kind of like, you know, little mini structure I need to do. One day for cleaning them up, making sure that they're nice and pretty so there's not like leftover material, oil, just junk in there. And you'd be surprised how much of a pain in the butt it is to clean your nanoparticles, but it's a thing. And then um, one or two days to characterize if I'm, you know, taking them to the electron microscope, but usually I'm also doing a couple other tests on them at the same time. Um, and that's already four days right there. And then, you know, it's like whatever other post, you know, manipulations I need to do. If it's, okay, now let's try wrapping it in this protein and see if it is biologically compatible or start all over because <laughs> it didn't work. And, and that's kind of the problem is you won't know if it worked or not until you see it in the TEM. So that's already a couple days of work put in and then you're just hoping and praying. 
But um, I really enjoy working with nanoparticles and I enjoy characterizing them, so I don't mind. So that's kind of like how my week shakes out. It will be, you know, a couple days of synthesizing and prepping and then a couple days of characterizing and then make this change here, make that change here. Do it all over again the next week. It sounds like you have to juggle a lot of different knowledges to get yes. your work done. So yes. um, like how did how did you adjust to that when you first got into the lab and how did you how did you deal with all learning all that stuff? Honestly, it's kind of by choice. I always enjoy things more when I like having a lot going on. Um Yeah, you you mentioned this. I yes. did, right? It's very it's a very consistent trend in my life. Wedding and the, Wedding, yes, yes. Graduating, other stuff. Um <laughs> So I like projects, I especially like projects where I can see each part through. So, you know, sometimes in a lab, and it's a really good system, right? One person will focus and just be like the characterization person. And that's all they do, right? Is they characterize this and then they'll hand it off to the next person. But I like being able to see all the parts through. So I kind of specifically, like, that's why I ended up in this lab and why I ended up with this project is, you know, I saw this project and I was like, this is going to let me do synthesis and characterization and try to make it biologically relevant. And I really liked that. So, um, you know, now like looking back and I have a, an appreciation of just how deep, cause that's kind of what grad school is, right? Is developing this very deep knowledge in this one area, but I've kind of spread out my area to be very, very large. So that's kind of been like a, uh, maybe I would have, you know, reeled it back a little bit, but I just, I would get bored only focusing on one thing and this way, at least, you know, I'm constantly, okay, well, if I don't want to do that, like, let's focus on, you know, how to better understand how DNA works, or, okay, now let's focus on how to improve nanoparticle synthesis. But it does make it really difficult um, switching between, like, and knowing who my audience is. So, for example, if I'm talking to, say, my inorganic professors, because I am, if you want to get into, like, the nitty-gritty details of grad school, you usually have a track and that'll determine like who's on, say, your committee to determine if you can advance and continue on in the program. So since I'm inorganic, I mostly talk with inorganic professors when it comes time to things like, can Kellen continue with the program and stuff like that? Which means that all my talks and all my, you know, discussions with them, I have to keep in mind that they're approaching it from an inorganic standpoint and will therefore be very interested and say like, what are the metals? How are they interacting with each other? How are they interacting with your surfactants? How does this you know, these characterization things work. But if I'm talking to a, you know, DNA person about the DNA aspect of my project, then I have to just completely flip what my focus is and what my knowledge base is. And the same thing for physical chemists, if we're talking about the theory behind it and surface plasma resonance or magnetism or all that stuff. It's, it's kind of a lot. And I will get, you know, it's, it's kind of easy to get confused and you have to just be really good about taking a moment, centering yourself and remembering, okay, like these are the key points for this person, but these are the key points if I'm talking to a different audience. It's fun. Keeps you on your toes. <laughs> yeah, there's definitely something to be said about juggling a lot of stuff as opposed to getting razor focused into one thing. Yeah. Different skill, like, I guess, engages the brain in different ways, I suppose. I always like it, but I, always, I can definitely respect wanting to focus on one thing. And I think, right, you focus on one thing and you're going to just be very very knowledgeable and refined and proficient in that like one area. Whereas I would say I'm, you know, moderately proficient and knowledgeable in many areas. Take that as you will. Yeah, you're not alone on that. I know one of the people in my committee was, he preferred to call himself that the Jack of all the trades, master, of, of, master, master of, none. of none. Yeah. 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 So you're not alone in that. Woo. 
one of the recurring themes that you brought up is uh, this. <laughs> let, me guess. let me guess what it is. Is it that I have a lot going on in my life? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so okay. One, wow. What a surprise. <laughs> so I wanted to ask about that. Um, so I know for me, uh, I kind of, that's kind of how I am too. Yeah. But that's out of, that's because I went to grad school and then I've been this busy. Now I can't go back anymore. I'll just be bored out of my mind if I, if my day is not just packed with things to do. Uh, was that the case for you? Did you get that out of grad school? Did that come earlier? Or no, where, where it's does kind that of always from? been a thing. Always, always, always. I don't know why, but it's, well, I, part of it is, you know, I, it's very easy to, you know, get me interested, engaged in things. And then once I'm interested, I want to be like involved and, you know, but I can't just be like casually involved. I have to be like deeply involved. <laughs> so, and I mean, it's just like snowballed from there. So it's been very consistent all through, you know, younger years, high school, college, definitely college. I would honestly argue that in grad school, I have been learning to bring it back. Yeah. And especially towards the end, um, I, again, kind of like, you know, so this has been, a, this is actually, so grad school actually has been a lot of personal growth and development and trying to pull back on all my commitments and things. Because I love doing things like science outreach and science communication, and I will do all kinds of things for that area. Um, but I've actually completely cut back on that. I haven't done any outreach or a lot of science communication for a couple months now as I'm trying to just focus on wedding and research so I can graduate. Um, but, but yeah, no, I like always just always been part of my personality to want to be involved in things and to get it all done. I can do it all. I can have it all. <laughs> do, do you have any speculation as to where, where that might come from? Is it? No idea. From, I, I don't know. Like from that desire to have it all, I suppose. I guess. Yeah. 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 I would blame, I guess if I had to blame anything, I'd blame reading Nancy Drew books when I was younger. I love Nancy Drew. Nancy Drew's the best. And Nancy Drew is good at everything. So <laughs> that means that, oh, well, to be like Nancy Drew, you must therefore be good at everything and involved in everything, just like Nancy Drew was, while also, you know, solving mysteries at the same time. <laughs> yeah. Grad school, because uh, Nancy Drew. Yep, exactly. Except the opposite. Except the, the opposite. Yeah. <laughs> So then I guess it's no surprise that you kind of, you said you chose this line of work, right? Like I know I fell yes. into my project, but you, you definitely chose this project. Oh yeah, project. I definitely chose it. <laughs> I saw that, oh, I can be involved in a ton of different areas. Yes, let's do that. Oh, we can have two different projects that barely overlap. Yes, let's definitely do that. <laughs> no, they don't barely overlap. A lot of their core, a lot of the core science overlaps. But a lot of the, you know, like reasons behind like, why are we doing this are totally different, which is kind of why, you know, at the very beginning, I had such a broad introduction of nanoparticles for enhancing analytical techniques. Because once you go beyond there, it's, there's not a whole lot that <laughs> overlaps. <laughs> so among this list of things that you do a lot of uh, yes. is science outreach and science communication. Yes. It's actually how we know each other, by yes. the way. Um, so first of all, like I mentioned in the intro, we work together with the Lowdown on Science. Yep. Uh, could you explain a little bit about what that is? Sure thing. So Sandra Singlow is, oh gosh, I mean, what? she's a personality, public figure. Personality. I, yeah. Yes, she is a personality. She, she is a personality, both yes. literally and figuratively speaking. Uh, yes. And she has her own 
uh, science radio program. It's distributed on, I think there's like some California local sites, but then it's also NPR. So, you know, we of course always lead with, oh, it's NPR. Um, <laughs> and um, yeah, there's these quick 90 second science uh, snippets about, you know, research, current research. We like to focus on current research, but honestly, you know, if it's a couple years past and so long as we haven't talked about it before, we're open to it. And so grad students at UC Irvine are welcome to write for her show, The Easiest Ways to Take Her Science Communication course, and then kind of get in through that way. But if you're good and you, you know, show interest and like, in a, you know, that you can follow the, she has a very specific style. So as long as you can write to that style, you're good to go. Um, so I got in by, yes, taking her class and then becoming a writer. And now um, Ted and I are both managing editors. So we don't write any scripts ourselves, although we could if we wanted to. We used but to. We used to, yeah. But we're very busy, you know, editing all the scripts of the current round of writers. It's fun. <laughs> like, why did you want to get into science outreach in the first place? Ooh, I love science outreach. I love, so I guess, you know, one of my things is I think there's, you know, science can be scary, but it's definitely unnecessarily so. Like, there's no reason why, you know, you sh somebody should look at chemistry or physics or math or engineering or biology and think that it's too difficult for them because it, that that's not, you know, on the person, that's on whoever's teaching it. So my big thing for science, whether it's like outreach to young children or my own personal science communication endeavors is to be able to take science and make it fun and easy and accessible. And just to give people the confidence to think like, oh, I can, you know, engage in science. I can pursue science. I can just be interested in science and read about it. Um, so that's always been, you know, my big, I guess, like kind of guiding ideal so yeah, it's just to make science fun for people and just to get more people interested in science. So you kind of answered around this question a little bit, but how do you feel like you've changed because of grad school? Ooh, 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 yeah. Um, how have I changed because of grad school? I mean, definitely going back to, you know, learning how to prioritize and schedule things and also... I learning how to, you know, take on enough responsibility so that I can do everything well to the best of my abilities, but not, you know, drive myself into the ground because of just overworking myself. That's still a work in progress every now and then I get very close to burnout. But um I'm getting better and better, you know, at managing it, at preventing it. Um any other ways though that I've changed in grad school? I'm sure this will be a lot easier to answer like a couple months out having graduated on the other side yeah yeah from the other side um let's see it's definitely made me well it's definitely helped me learn what i really love which is science communication science outreach so that you know for that reason alone honestly i wouldn't change what you know my decision to go to grad school um because even if i don't end up in something that's research-based it'll have been worth it because i was given the time and the opportunity and chance to uh, really develop my science communication skills and learn what I really liked. Um, any other like, you know, personal growth things from grad school? I started drinking a lot more coffee in grad school ah. and alcohol. Actually, I didn't really drink a whole lot. I don't drink that much, but you know, I went from like, you know, zero to a small amount, which is a pretty big difference. You know, it's still infinitely large. Exactly. Infinitely exactly. more than zero. Uh, yes. I love to say that the difference between zero and one is infinite. Slash, yeah, one is infinitely more than zero. Yes. 
So, um, right. So, you know, now it's like, oh yeah, I'll go to the pub with you and like have a beer, like, you know, a couple times a month. Again, still small, but this is hugely different from college when I'm like, I didn't really drink. <laughs> yeah, I know my coffee habit came from uh, grad school. Yeah, coffee habit came from grad school. Um, I'm still like a super duper night owl, so that's still the same. <laughs> um, yeah, I still like to involve myself in everything, but again, I am getting better at managing um, I, I don't know. You mentioned something about burnout a little Ooh, earlier. Yes. Yeah. Uh, was burnout because of the way you want to live your life, being super involved with things? Mm-hmm. Is burn- has has or is burnout a consistent problem? Yeah, especially. So one of the things in my grand plan, right, of juggling grad school and a wedding one of the things i also didn't account for was that i would develop my love of science communication so a, not long after you know setting this plan i fell into that and so suddenly juggling all three of those things at one time became very difficult um so i've had burnout you know so you know five years in the five years of grad school i've definitely had burnout because i did not love my project you know i have not always worked on the magnets it's what i started working on we hit a wall we moved on to some other stuff that i haven't even talked about and I didn't really like it. There's a reason I don't talk about it. And that was really tough. So that was kind of like a different type of burnout. It was just, um, I don't I'm actually, maybe that was just, maybe that's just straight up depression. I don't know. But you know, you just very unmotivated, did not enjoy working on my stuff. Um, which yeah. is again, why I fell into science communication as a way to try and motivate myself and encourage myself. Like, oh, if you have to communicate an experiment every day, then it'll force you to go in and do experiments. That's where my science communication started. It is not actually like that anymore. <laughs> um, but definitely in the past year, year and a half, I've come very close, if not actually being burnout, where, you know, it's just week after week of working, maybe like, you know, maybe working nine to two was a bit, 2 a.m., <laughs> 9 a.m. to 2 a.m. was a bit of an ambitious schedule. Um and I'd usually, you know, I could probably be, honestly, it would kind of follow the quarter system. I could do it for about 10 weeks, eight weeks. I could do it for eight weeks well. Nine and 10 were a little rough. Then all my responsibilities would finish and I'd, you know, take it really easy that next week. Or sometimes I'd just have weekends where it's all I do is sleep. Um, and then I definitely, I've had a couple moments where I just, everything just feels like the world's ending and I am freaking out. And fortunately, my fiance has been really great and he's able to, you know, help me out. I'm like, you know, I'll come to him and be like, this has to get done and I cannot get it done. And he's like, okay, we're going to sit down and you're going to get it done. I'm like, okay. And then it gets done and it's fine. Solid support system. Yeah. Like oh, hearing. solid like support system. Oh man. Mm-hmm. Solid mm-hmm. support system is everything in grad school. Like just, I have very solid support system of friends, my fiance, my family. It's just, it's been great. Um, so yeah, I haven't burned out in spectacular fashion, I'd say, but I've come close and I'm starting to get better and better about kind of recognizing like, oh, maybe this is going to drive you towards a spectacular burnout. Maybe you should stop. Um, and then, yeah, and and usually following these like spectacular periods of getting very close to a burnout will usually follow with me kind of being unmotivated by work. That hasn't been the case so much in the past two months, again, with my impending wedding deadline. (laughs) See, look, positives. Um... (laughs) But it's definitely burnout something that I've definitely had to manage and deal with. It hasn't been too terrible. I'm usually able to either stop before it gets too bad or, you know, eventually recover. But yeah, it's definitely, you know, something that you just have to kind of roll with the punches and pick yourself up after, you know, maybe extending yourself a little too far. 
interesting comment you had about depression a little mm-hmm. just a little moments few moments back um because i had to deal with depression during yeah. grad school that was a thing and um interestingly too so you're gonna you get to reveal uh, what I used to do for my grab for my Ooh. thesis. Uh, I work in nuclear fuel recycling. I, yes. I'm an energy researcher. Uh, I study the chemicals that are used in recycling spent nuclear fuel. Mm-hmm. Now, there's a lot of things about that <laughs> yeah. that just doesn't quite fly in the states, right? The first being, well, it's nuclear uh, yep. power. Yeah. It's going way out of fashion <laughs> so fast. Yeah. Uh, number two. Uh, recycling anything, we haven't recycled anything since, like, I think, what, the 70s or something ridiculous like that. Uh, never mind, like, radioactive shit mm. that no one wants to touch, <laughs> yeah. like, uh, which, you know, presents its own problems, aside from the fact that we're not going to do it yeah, anyway. Yeah, right, yeah, we've already, you know, yeah. yeah like, nuclear's um, already a no-no, but yeah, now it's, it's already, an extra no-no. <laughs> and recycling, it's an extra no-no. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, um, it's depressing. It's utterly depressing, mm-hmm. feeling like, the work that you're doing isn't going to be useful for anybody. Yeah. And I, like you, I kind of found uh, science communication in around that same time. No no surprise I'm running a podcast now. I know. Yeah, no, I love it. I love it. Well, I'm glad. thank you. Thank you. It's uh, a validation because I'm not getting it from my work. Uh, I didn't. I know, right, exactly. Yeah. That honestly was exactly it. Or kind of what it became. So originally, yeah, the, it was the idea of if I'm, you know, if I have to publicly, con- or well, so for me, it was started as like a public accountability thing i almost said shaming but let's use positive words accountability (laughs) um where i'm like okay you're gonna post once a day and it you know it's gonna be science related and what's more sciencey than your research and um you know so if you have to post once a day then you must do research once a day even though you hate your work were you posting by the way um, I'm not currently posting because it's part of my, you know, grades, ah, yes, but yes. yes. So for uh, when I started, you know, from when I started my Instagram in October of 2018, yeah, no, 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 October of 2017. I have no concept of time. So between October of 2017, I know, right. And the end of July, 2019, I posted about five to six times a week. On some kind of science topic. Of course, with, literally with the first, you, you can scroll back. My first post is not related to research at all. It's about um, a acid-based demo I was developing for science outreach. But, um, but the, you know, the thought was there. But yeah, so it was just this idea that, you know, if you're thinking about science every day, then hopefully this can eventually start to motivate you to, you know, push your research along. And it kind of actually did what it was supposed to do. Eventually, I was, you know, pushed enough with my research. And then I was able to take what I had learned from that. And say, hey, maybe we can go back to the magnets, which is why I joined the lab in the first place and was my first research love. And um, and then, yeah, everything's been, uh, you know, moving, you know, sometimes slowly, sometimes fast, but everything's been moving since then. So science communication kind of got me out of my research, right? Just want to uh, remind folks, the, the, you, know, you weren't taking selfies with a bunch of test tubes. You, oh. you were doing... Talking about actual science, producing science content. Yes, so, yeah, a lot so of work. each it was a lot of work, and also part of why I had to step it back. But yeah, each so each of my science, yeah, so at least five times I would find something out there. You know, usually my favorite way to do it was just to ask a question and then try to answer it using specifically chemistry. My focus is chemistry, so um, so yeah, so you know, some if it's maybe I'm eating an interesting food and I'm like, well, how is this food so delicious? Why are pho noodles, which are rice based, how are you able to make long noodles if they don't have the gluten in it? 
that is in most other noodles, gluten from wheat. And it's because rice actually has its own protein that can form chains. That is besides the point. But right, yeah, these were, yes, science posts. It wasn't, you know, they weren't like lifestyle posts as a scientist, which again, nothing wrong with that. Um, my approach was to stick more to science. <laughs> is there any other thing you want to elaborate I can splice in this part? Yeah, let into... me think about it. I guess, well, okay, kind of, I guess, going back to like, how has grad school changed you? Because one of the big things that I've had to, one of the, well, so one of the biggest things like changes in grad school that I've had to get used to and kind of just, you know, being an adult in general is developing my own plan and schedule. So, you know, cause I went, I came straight out of college, straight into, I, or I went straight out of college into grad school and in college, you know, and you know, all up until that point, everything, you know, there was a schedule, there were due dates and, you know, you knew you had to be in this place, in this place at these times, you knew you had to submit this and that at those times if you did that on time, great. If you didn't, that's really bad. But um, once classes ended in grad school, I had none of that. And that was a huge thing for me. Like, And I think that is also part of why I like to have so many things going on because it adds structure to my life. I like being involved in activities that meet at this time and that time. I like, you know, being involved with things that'll be like, oh, well, we have this deadline and that deadline. And what's kind of funny is that looking back now, it's so obvious. It's like, oh, I need deadlines to function. It took me like four years of grad school to realize I needed hard deadlines. And I was like, wow, what a concept. And from then, you know, I started. And also one of the things that I started doing was just scheduling out everything. It was one of the pieces of advice I had picked up as, you know, you just are out there looking at other people's lifestyle science blogs, which is why those things are incredibly useful. So again, yeah, no shame on those. Those lifestyle science, you know, Instagrams are super useful. I've picked up tons of great tips from them. Um, so like scheduling out everything, everything. And again, and that has helped me a ton. Do I always stick to my schedule? No, but I'm getting better and better. Um, and yeah, and then trying to set deadlines for myself uh, has been incredibly helpful. So that's been, and is still to some degree, like, probably one is one of the biggest and hardest things is yeah just kind of trying to manage myself because I've never really had to before because I've just you know my life was managed for me by all these deadlines and schedules and things you know that's actually really interesting to hear about because kind of my experience was a little different I am not a structure guy at all <laughs> uh so <laughs> the story I come back to uh when I was a kid I used to play with Legos a lot nice um, and my dad, seeing that, and he, he's an engineer, right? So he's like, oh, very organized, regimented, he's that kind of guy. Uh, so he got me like this little like tool part, the compartment shelf thing. Oh. Well, I pull out. It was like a legit like tool to thing sort things. To sort everything. <laughs> right. And then he put all the stuff, all the two by ones in here and all yep. the two by twos here and this little slot so you can pull them out as you need them. And it just didn't work. Oh it my just god! Did not. I just I would have a ball organizing it. Oh my god! Yeah, I, that's so funny. It's funny because I'm like completely the opposite. Right? <laughs> I I just dumped it all out, and I was like, my system worked. I had vaguely spaceship be parts on this pile. I had um, a Coney parts in this other pile, uh -huh. and then I had uh, like you know parts with fins on this pile. I knew where everything was. Like I, I, I can't build anything hilarious. with this. Hilarious! It's interesting that it worked worked out that way. Yeah. Um, and so then uh, was grad school, like, a good time for you, like, having that freedom? Well, yeah, not so, a good time, but – because, like, I like – like, don't get me wrong. Like, I love the flexibility of grad yes. school. Like, oh, oh yeah, yeah. 
oops, I stayed in up too late or, you know, or, well, so again, cause I'm a night owl. So it's okay that I come in like two hours later than everybody. Cause I stay two hours later than everybody or you need to run this chore. So do it like in the morning when no one else is around and then just stay in late in grad school. That is, I think the absolute best part of grad school. For yeah. Me. Oh, like, right. Yeah. Hands yeah. Down. Like, cause you just, things need to get done and you just do them. It's yeah. not like a question, like it, no one, no one's asking questions. Right, exactly. Oh, you need to take two weeks off to go get married? Yep, okay, have fun, bye. (laughs) (laughs) Just worked, you know. This worked out. Okay, wait, I have to tell you a really funny story real quick. One time, um, he was gone for like a week in a conference, and that week lined up exactly when I was taking off time to go uh, visit family in Hawaii. So I never told him (laughs) I was taking a week off. So he never knew that I was in Hawaii for a week. And we took pains to make sure like we, I remember I was with my um, fiance and we visited a hotel and they had this cute like photo kiosk and like it said, Aloha from, you know, this hotel. And so we sent it to his mom and we sent it to her with this very specific message of don't post this to Facebook. My PI does not know that I'm in Hawaii. So if you do it, like do it like weeks or months later. Oh man. Yeah, good times. See, good because times. it's all because of the flexibility of grad school. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yes, that flexibility does mean a lot of things. Um, yeah. If boss ain't around to ask questions, uh, then the, you don't answer any questions. That's yeah. That has been my experience, too. Never mind the fact that, you know, uh, yeah, most of my days have been to like 2 p.m., 2 a.m., excuse me, 2 a.m. as well. Oh, yeah, I feel you. Yeah, because I used to, I'm a night owl, too. I used to uh, be a baker. I did night shift. It was a oh, graveyard baker. Oh, no way. Yeah, so... Night owl. Oh, that's cool. Two o'clock, uh, two a.m. Oh, it's time for lunch. You know. That's, oh my god! Wow. Oh wow! Real night shift. Yeah. Dang. Yeah. That's intense. Yeah. So I'm used to that. So um, anyway, what were we talking? Back to the topic. Uh, so the flexibility. Flexibility. Yes. Yes. Yeah, it's certainly a great thing about grad school. But you're right, though. You do. Um, I guess one thing we do have in common, though, is that deadlines work. Mm-hmm. If, if there's no deadline, <laughs> it's just not get getting done. done. Yeah. Never get done. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's that looming force that kind of pushes you along. Oh, yeah. But it's interesting how we do go about it very different yes. ways. I don't... Schedules don't work. They, oh, they just, so I just, just just doesn't... My brain just... It yeah, just, just, just can't. Like it just can't. Organizing. Yeah, the Lego. <laughs> it just can't. It just can't. Can't. It don't. It doesn't. I yeah. can't even word it. That's how wow. it does not it is. I literally cannot fathom that. <laughs> <laughs> Which is weird, right? But um But yeah, on the other hand though, I just kinda like, oh, this needs to get done. I'll get it done. That's just kinda how I am. And then, you know, the hours tick by and then it's like, you know, I'm complaining about how I just missed the closed time for in and out because I need food because I haven't eaten all day. Oh my and god, like, I can't you know, tell you. Oh yeah, I've done many like midnight in and out runs. I'm like, well, I guess this is dinner now <laughs> <laughs> or lunch. Or ending. lunch, depending. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I've had those days, those crazy synthesis days where, well, it's 4 p.m. Time for lunch. <laughs> yeah. Right. Final question: What's your go-to food? When you gotta stress eat. Oh my god. Okay, so that's actually been. I think that has been a recent relevate. Re- Jesus, that has been a re- recent revelation in the past year because again, this past year has been very busy for me. Ramen. Ramen is my go-to comfort food. Really, any like noodle soupy dish will do. Ramen pho. Ramen pho. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, ramen, hands down is the best. What is it about ramen specifically? So uh, you used to like, okay, noodle soups, sure. 
Yeah. Um, ramen, you know, they just, well, especially like tonkatsu ramen, you've got like that creamy broth and the nice, like, it, like the noodles have a good chew to it, I feel like. And I have done a chemistry post on this. It's because of like, you, it's an alkaline um, solution that, you know, you use to make the noodles and it's supposed to give them. I still haven't figured out why having a, like, a basic environment does that, but I'm not going to question it right now. Well, I will question it later. But um, yeah, you know, the nice chewy noodles and then the delicious like tender meat that you can throw in and Oh, and the flavored egg. Oh, my God. I love egg. I love egg. Ramen eggs are pretty incredible. Ramen eggs are the best. So, yeah, it's just this beautiful combination of, you know, all those delicious things that I love in this warm soup that just tastes so good. And you can just eat it forever. Well, not forever because I get pretty full. But, yeah, ramen is my go-to. Like, if I'm having a bad time, like, I'm like, let's go get ramen. So, you mentioned this was a recent revelation? Within the past year. And I've always loved ramen, but now I, like, love ramen like i think if you had asked me before i would maybe say like soup so like you know soups and stews i'm always a big fan of it's it's a carte of trait my siblings and i are all very partial but whereas i love all soups and stews my brother well one of my brothers only likes soups not stews and my other brother only likes stews not soups and i'm like dude they're way too similar for you guys to be pulling these kinds of distinctions like what is wrong with you but that is besides the point (laughs) Um, that's, that's also kind of a generalization, but also kind of not really. Um, but yeah, it was definitely within this past year, you know, just every time I was stressed, I just like, you know, it sounds really good right now. Fucking ramen. And then I realized, oh, ramen ramen. is my go-to comfort food. Faux show. So yeah. Ramen. That too. Sometimes. Yes. Faux show. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, exactly. Yeah. That's actually my go-to sick comfort food. If I think I'm getting sick, I will eat pho. Nonstop. Oh yeah, with a little bit of the, the sriracha. Yeah, I know, right? A little yeah. bit heavy on the sriracha. Oh yeah. Yeah, to like yeah, clear the science, oh, yeah. sinuses and mm-hmm. like the lime and the salon. Oh yeah, definitely. That's my go-to sick food. Awesome. Well, it was fantastic chatting with this you. This was so much fun. Oh, I'm glad. I'm glad. <laughs> well, thank you for coming. Yeah, thank you.